Toronto FC, a team with a new direction after an off-season makeover. It's an all-Canadian affair. Matt working against Morgan. Puts it across the mile. Yes! Marco DeVille! That's what we expected from him! To make those rainbows in my mind when I think of you sometime and I wanna spend all time with you just the two of us. Welcome to the Two Solitudes Podcast. I'm Dwayne Rollins with Kevin Laramay. A special edition today. It's our MLS Cup preview edition. Kevin, how are things in Montreal? Things are pretty good. I'm actually getting really excited for the MLS Cup because the two teams are very exciting to watch. Being Having no dog in the race, being not a fan of neither of the team, it's going to be very different this year. Uh, watching there's two different stories like the underdog, the internal underdog with the revolution against the big powerhouse with the huge Landon Donovan retirement story. Uh, it's going to be a, a great week and a great game. First to five. That's the L.A. Uh, uh, hashtag that they've been forcing this week. Uh, in this podcast, we're also going to address Don Garber's uh, State of the Union address. Yeah, we'll uh, have to. Lots, lots to digest there. And uh, we'll especially highlight the Canadian issues, obviously, this being what it is. Um, I think he inadvertently uh, referred to me as uh, as quote unquote Twitter uh, in the address. Not tw- Twitter isn't the people that are going to. I, I kind of yell at him a lot on Twitter. Um, Don and I we have a have a very bad Twitter relationship. Um, at any rate, we're going to talk about the Canadians' as domestics issue. Uh, we have a clip from the uh, State of the Union address and uh, another clip that uh, that deals with that, and a clip that deals with uh, sort of some Freudian slips that he sometimes sometimes comes out with that I want to just illustrate, not to be petty, but to point something out. (laughs) Okay. Uh, We have two great guests on today as well. Why don't we take a quick break now, Kevin, and we'll bring Hank Hank Alexandra uh, on. Uh, He is uh, with the New England Revolution. He's traveling there, longtime fan, longtime podcaster of that club. Let's bring him on now, Kevin, and talk about New England. Welcome back to the Two Solitudes Podcast. I'm Dwayne Rollins with Kevin Laramay. Hank Alexander, the uh, host of the Midnight Ride Podcast, joins us from uh, from the Boston area right now. Hank, uh, thanks for taking some time. Uh, it's a great reason to come on the show, guys. I tell you, couldn't be happier. <laughs> yeah, we're not too familiar with what this playoff thing entails up here in Canada. <laughs> I, especially in Toronto, we're not too sure what it means. So, uh what does it mean, Hank? Because I actually know your name for a long time back, so you've been a Revolution fan since since the previous uh, good days. So uh, what's it like? What's it feel like to to get back to the big show again? Well, I mean, this is incredible right now. To think that this is the same team 
that went on an eight-game losing streak in the middle of the season and were able to turn it around with the addition of one particular player to bring it all together, bring all the pieces together. It's just a, a kind of turnaround that they write movies about. You know, this is this is storybook ending right here, going to the final, going up against the, the biggest names uh, in MLS right now. And, uh, you know, they're all primed for their own storybook ending with Landon Donovan riding off into the sunset, and Robbie Keane likely to pick up MVP today, et cetera. And, and you look at all those things playing against the Revs, and you know, how great would it be for New England Revolution to go into their fifth MLS Cup and their third against the Galaxy and just steal the show. I mean, this is just so exciting right now. And to be a Revolution fan at this time, it's, it's amazing. And Hank, you were telling us off air that you're uh, you're preparing to head your head yourself to Los Angeles. Just talk a bit about what the uh, the fan experience, what the fan reaction has been in uh, in Boston, in New England over this, how many people you're expecting to get out there, and, uh, and and tell us all those good things. Yeah, so I know about of at least 100 people that are going oh, uh, wow. from from the Revs, um, from the, the Midnight Riders, New England Rebellion, um, those, those supporters groups organizations, and the Rev Army as well. And some of those uh, aren't members are also going, uh, people that have recently kind of jumped back on the bandwagon or have families uh, that have become recently intrigued with, with Major League Soccer and in particular New England Revolution. Um, the, the team has really done such wonders in the past few weeks, few months, bringing in new fans into the stadium and, and winning them over. We had over 1,200 people go down to New York for the uh, first leg of the, the, play, uh, the championship, Eastern Conference Championship. Uh, and there was one other person on my bus. It's 20 buses that went down. And one other person on my bus had ever been to an MLS away game. One other person besides myself. The rest of the people had never been to an MLS away game before. And then two people had never even been to an MLS game before at all. And so I, 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 you see that kind of outreach the team's getting, and it's just driving the numbers through the roof. As for the, for the uh, fans, that were at the game last weekend. We saw such celebration. You would think that we had won the cup already. I was a little bit worried, actually. People were getting a little ahead of themselves how much celebrating they were doing. But, uh, you know, it's still all there to play for, one game to go. And uh, I think people are feeling, um, you know, they're feeling cautiously optimistic. I think it's a big what-if scenario, as in what are we going to do if we actually win this? What do, <laughs> imagine the mentality of, uh, you know, your Toronto fans up there, Dwayne, if, if you guys actually want it all. That's basically what it's going to feel like. Hank, now with the Revolution having the stellar performances in the playoffs, you were, you mentioned earlier that they had a big losing streak in July and to turn things around with your rival of Jermaine Jones and now everything is okay. With Jermaine Jones joining the team this summer, did you expect the team to gel like they did and to perform like they did? You know, I've been talking with a lot of people about this in the last few days, um, and with with the arrival of Jermaine Jones, I mean, it, it didn't make he didn't automatically overnight turn these guys into good soccer players, right? I mean, but it, he did provide a kind of a catalyst for those soccer players to reach their potential. Um, those guys obviously had the talent all along, but by adding that one piece. 
has been able for people like Lee Wynn to get more space, more room the ball. He's playing further up the field. People like uh, Teal Bunbury are on the receiving end of these brilliant passes from Jermaine Jones. Charlie Davies, another guy who's, who's benefited a number of times now from the receiving end, being on the receiving end of, uh, of a couple of passes. These guys are now having kind of um, almost, I don't want to say career years, but they're having the best years that they've had in a while. Um, and you look at a guy like uh, you know Chris Tierney, you know, last week had two brilliant crosses to set up both goals. Um, it's it's all because I think I'm not ashamed to say it, it's all because this one guy came in and he has raised the level of play in the players around him. He he almost kind of without asking for it, he almost commanded it that these guys knew now that they had a a marquee player on their side and that they had to up their game. And I think it's so it's a, it's a I think it look at it as an individual responsibility from across the team. Every player took it upon themselves to raise their game. And Jermaine Jones has just been that catalyst for this team. So it's huge. Now heading into the game, the final game of the season, the cup final for Major League Soccer. Who's going to win, do you think? What do you expect in that game? Is it going to be the London, Donovan, beautiful, riding out into the sunset? Or maybe Lee Nguyen, uh, his coming off party? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, any, it's anything can happen day this Sunday, right? It's, this is a, a team, the game I think is going to be basically won or lost in the midfield. So if, if you um, are able to control the midfield and the Revolution like to press and control the ball in the opposing yeah. half, um, the LA Galaxy have a very strong midfield, um, and they're going to do their best to spring the counter, and they've got the weapons to do that. And so uh, it's going to be a tight game in the midfield, I think. So um, I do think both teams will have their chances. So I do think that there will be a number of goals scored. I don't think this is going to be a 0-0, 180-minute uh, affair. Or, is that right? Did it move right? Yeah, yeah, 180 minutes. Uh, but I do think that there will be goals, and I, but it would not surprise me if it ended in a tie and they'd have to go to a shootout either. So, I mean, it's I'm expecting anything. You know, I'm not expecting the worst. I'm expecting the best. I'm just trying to be as open as possible. This is my first trip to an MLS Cup final. Uh, I didn't make the previous trip down to D.C., even though it was only an eight-hour drive for me. I should have done it, but I didn't. Um, but the... Uh, you know, it's been a long seven years for a lot of these fans now, and, and for us to go out there and, and show the kind of support that we're going to do, I think we're all just very excited to be in the final. Um, winning it all at this stage, obviously, is the goal. But in hindsight, you know, it's been a fantastic year, and, and uh, we should be proud of the team for what they've been able to accomplish. Uh, for sure. Uh, Hank, I'm going to end with this. I'm just going to let you uh, – I want to put you put your head into a, an L.A. fan perspective for a second or, or to Bruce Arena's head if you could do that and, and handicap how – the galaxy are going to stop the revolution. Yeah, you know, if I'm if I'm uh, Bruce Arena, etc., I'm going to press in that midfield and make sure I play hard and uh, win that ball in the midfield and spring the counter all day. You know, because the revolution like to play a very kind of uh, attacking formation in the back line can get stretched out at times and pester the heck out of Jose Gonzalez. Get him out of position. He's been shown the last couple of games that, you know, in crunch time, he gets a little panicky. Um, he likes to cover a lot of ground. Uh, and he has the skill to do it, but sometimes he overcommits and leaves big uh, gaping holes 
in the defense. And uh, if, if that happens, um, we'll we'll see uh, we'll see some goals for sure out of LA. Um, so that would be my advice to the LA Galaxy. All right, Hank. If you could just uh, let the listeners know how uh, how they can follow your work, and uh, and uh, we'll wish you luck uh, and enjoy the LA sunshine. Sure. So yeah, I'm the host of the Midnight Ride podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TMR Podcast or uh, online at www.themidnightride.us. You can also follow me at Hisco Five on Twitter. That's my personal Twitter account. Hank Alexander, host have, of the Midnight Ride. Have a great trip. I mean, I'm just sitting right here, checking out this young lady right here. Baby, you hot. I mean, you sexy. Oh, my God. Let me ask you one question. Where you from anyway? And welcome back to the Two Saltines. Josie Becker. Uh, she is the editor, the LA Galaxy editor for SB Nation, the LAG confidential uh, editor there. Uh, Josie, thanks for taking some time for us. Uh, no problem, guys. Happy to be here. Are uh, you excited? I am uh, pretty thrilled. You know, it's uh, our third MLS Cup uh, that we get to not only play in but host in four years. So that's, uh, you know, pretty much the best thing you can get as an MLS fan. Absolutely, uh, and I, I assume uh, you're expecting a big house in there and a, and a big rowdy house to see uh, Landon Donovan's last game out. Yeah, you know, uh, well, you know, for the last regular season home game, they had you know they had extra seating and it was a huge sellout, um, really loud and raucous. Uh, the two MLS Cups that I've been to, pretty much the same deal. You know, cold and rainy, which is weird for Los Angeles, but it's late enough that it happens, and uh, yeah, everyone gets really into it. Let's talk about Landon a little bit. Is there something special going on with there? Is he sort of grinding it out and giving him yourself a little bit more because he knows it's done, do you think? I think that's got a lot to do with it. You know, I think he's sort of struggled with being a sports celebrity pretty much his entire career. I don't know if that was something that he really signed up for getting into it. But, uh, you know, now with a lot of that pressure off of him knowing that there's sort of an end date you know he's playing like that he's he's playing like someone who's put in their two weeks notice and knows like all right I can, I can play as hard as i want you know all the injuries i'll have so much time to recover there's not there's nothing else beyond this like let's just go out and have some fun it's funny that you mentioned that do you think that there's a big weight off his shoulder like you say like somebody who gave his notice he doesn't really care anymore he's just doing it for himself for the fun and do you think that energy was uh, contagious throughout the team I, I would I would definitely argue that that was the case. You know, I look at like uh, the uh, 2012 season uh, when David Beckham retired, and how like after you know, sort of from the midpoint on of that season, the team really kind of was the best in MLS. Even though they kind of were a lower seed in the playoffs, like they got really hot and they started rallying around him, and then carried that momentum through the playoffs to a cup win. Um, and you've sort of had that here as well. You know, the timing works out well, sort of, you kind of get past the World Cup and all that stuff, but they have really have had a lot to rally around this year with London, plus with A.J. De La Garza and his story. Like, the storylines with this team uh, are pretty immense, and sometimes that can be enough just to give you something to fight for. You said that all those storylines are big. 
Do you think are maybe a little too big? Do you think they'll overshadow what the team was able to uh, produce in the last couple of weeks? Do you think those storylines might be a distraction adding to the game this weekend? Nah, I, I, I think mo- motivation is not a uh, limited resource. You're not going to fill up your motivation quota and then suddenly have uh, too much motivation to carry with you. Uh, I think all of these things that are going through their heads, all these reasons why that they're playing through injuries, why they're working hard out there, you know, that's just going to keep fueling things out there. Uh, Josie, uh, this be, I, I'm from Toronto here now, and uh, there's a player that's been excelling for you there that doesn't make a lot of sense to us that, that followed TFC. So can you talk about Dan Gargan for me and tell me what the key to him, has his turnaround's been? You know, um, the the Galaxy back line, I mean, they were they allowed an MLS low 37 goals this year. Um, and But that's been a consistent thing, I would say, for the last, you know, since Omar Gonzalez and AJ De La Garza came into the league. Like, they've been a very consistent back line. Um, and that's been, regardless of the pieces that have been folded in. So you've had Leonardo, who, you know, Everything with eyeballs goes, oh, Leonardo, he makes a lot of mistakes. But Leonardo on that back line actually wasn't that bad when you take the entire year into account. Um, you know, we've, you've plugged uh, Robbie Rogers in to Todd Donovan's spot, which, you know, Todd Donovan's been really spectacular there for years. And now you've got this converted midfielder who's playing great defense and working out at fullback. And I, I would put Dan Gargan in that same category of, you know, he just, there's something about the coaching in L.A. where they they get defense. And so you can plug in, had it been James Riley, I don't think, I think he would have had just as much success at fullback as Dan Gargan did. Should remind people that Todd Donovan was a former TFC player as well. <laughs> Maybe the worst trade in MLS history when you look at what Donovan's done since he's gone back to LA. But anyway, that's not crying my milk here too much. Um, that the MVP award is being announced in about two and a half hours from when we're recording this. Uh, is it going to be a Galaxy that raises it up? Do you think? Um, I mean, this is obviously my bias here, but I think that Robbie Keane's resume for the award, you know, just, it wasn't just goals, um, you know, goals and assists combined, no one can touch him in the league, um, you know, and to be second, in, and I, you know, we can talk about the second assist and how it can inflate some of those numbers, um, but he was also tops in assists that uh, were game winners, so, you know, he is says, such an integral part of the Galaxy attack, whether he's scoring or creating the chances. And for this to be an attack that, you know, had such a ridiculously good goal differential on the year, um, he's, in my mind, absolutely deserving, um, even when comparing him to some really good competition in Obafemi Martins and uh, the other dude. Um, so you know it's 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 been a long year and i think he's been such a key part of it even though it's yes he's surrounded by great players but you take him away and uh the galaxy really suffer you mentioned a little earlier robbie rogers playing in todd donovan's spot another great storyline for la this season uh the trade with mcgee a couple years ago was a big Big news, but uh, Robbie Rogers went a little low profile since then until his resurgence this year. How can you describe the way he's playing, too? It seems like he's really coming out of his shell and blooming as a player this year. Yeah, you know, I think, 
I mean, we've got, you know, the, the book just came out, mm-hmm. so you, everyone's got his story pretty much fresh in their minds. And you don't want to keep coming back to that. At some point, you just want to be like, no, he's a soccer player. Like, let's put all that aside. Um, but I think there's definitely something to be said about he's come home. He's found a comfort level. He's gotten healthy. You know, his struggles last year were a lot to do with just injuries. Um, and, you know, the... There was that comparison that you start making. You go, oh, look, Mike McGee's scoring all these goals for Chicago um, as a forward, and here is this guy who's brought in to replace him at midfield in L.A., and he's just injured all the time. Um, but I think you know, just having a year that, where he's healthy and he's home and you know he's out and not worried about all those struggles right now, um, he's just really starting to flourish. He's finding, finding his footing, and it's been great to watch. We can't have you on the show and having the Galaxy in the finals once again without at least mentioning Bruce Arena and his body of work in the playoff. Once again this year, he's one of the reasons the Galaxy progressed from game to game. How can you explain how can you explain how Bruce Arena controls his team during a playoff game? You know, he his record is untouched in Major League <laughs> Soccer. Like you look at what he did with DC when Really, everyone was just making it up as they went along, and then you have what he did, you know, coming back to the league, coming to the LA Galaxy, and you know, managing what was and and you know, before Arena got here, there was Beckham and there was Donovan, and there was lots of chaos, and he's kind of been able to put everything together. He drafts really well, and I think that's something that can get overlooked sometimes. Like he has replenished the talent on the team so well, gotten performances out of Dan Gargans, gotten performances um, from all sorts of foreign players that, you know, were probably not on anyone's radar. You know, Christian Wilhelmsen, uh, Stefan Ishizaki. Like, he's brought players like that in and gotten them to be great role guys uh, and supplying your London Donovans and your Robbie Keens. Um, so I think that has is a lot of his knowledge of talent I think is his biggest strength and he's not the biggest tactician you know he doesn't not going to change up the 442 all that often um, he just knows how to find 11 players who can get something done uh, come playoff time um, and there's few guys in MLS that understand the league that well um, and and that have his 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 record I asked uh, Hank, the, the fellow we interviewed from New England uh, before you, to put himself in Bruce Arena's head and to predict how he would shut down New England. I'm going to ask you the same thing opposite. If you would look at the, at the Galaxy, how would you as an opposing coach shut them down on Sunday? Looking at the Galaxy, how am I going to shut down L.A.'s attack? Um, stop it. How are you going to stop L.A.? How are you going to beat L.A.? Uh, you know, I think... I think the the first thing you have to really work on is shutting down Landon Donovan and shutting down that service between him and Robbie Keane. If you can keep them from playing together, that's going to go a long way toward forcing L.A. to the other side, which is right now uh, and Stefan Ishizaki and uh, A.J. De La Garza side, which usually ends up being a lot of long balls and you know seattle really used this uh, strategy effectively um in limiting la to just one goal uh when they are when they had the, the first leg um and then you know the even the the second goal uh, up in seattle kind of came from a random you know janino from outside the penalty area uh, not a high percentage shot <laughs> bounce off the woodwork so you know 
shutting down that service between that triangle of Donovan and Keane and Robbie Rogers will force LA to get uh let's call it a miracle goal from a low percentage shot uh by a midfielder, you know, or a or an Alan Gordon coming in like and that is not something you can count on as much as you can count on uh, Donovan working some magic. Josie, why don't you tell the listeners how they can follow your work? Um, well, the blog is LAG Confidential, like the movie LA Confidential, but with a G in there. Um, and uh, I, we're also active on Twitter. Um, and you can find myself on Twitter um, at Josie Becker FC. Got to get that FC in there, otherwise, you're not a soccer club. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. All right, Josie, thanks so much for taking some time today, and enjoy your day of Sunday. All right, thank you. You are listening to the Two Solitude Soccer Podcast, the 2014 MLS Talk Awards Best Podcast Winner. Thanks for everyone who voted for us. Thanks to all the listeners. Anybody who voted, we thank you very much. We could not have done it without you. And now, back to the show. Thanks again to both of our guests for uh, for coming on and giving us some time today. Exciting times for them. I wouldn't know much about it, Kevin. Would you? About the playoffs? Uh, not really. You just saw one game and I tried to forget it still. Pretty yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, and I certainly wouldn't know much. Or neither one of us would know much about a championship game. Uh, <laughs> it's been since 1984, since, uh, since the Canadian city played in the championship game of the top division of North American soccer. Speaking of 1984, if you're wondering what happened in 1984, go a couple episodes back. Listen to the NASL 30 Years After 1984 show. Uh, a great show. We had amazing reviews for that show. So uh, take a second and take a listen. Yeah, absolutely. We broke that uh, that game down, and that uh, the end of the NASL, NWSL. I don't know what I'm talking about here. The uh, you never know, uh, like who DC, which team folded. There's a team that actually folded this week too. Uh, the Ottawa Fury women has actually folded this. Yeah, week. that's in the that's unfortunate. We'll maybe talk about that in our main episode uh, uh, next Monday. We have Rudy Schuler on from Goal Canada on Monday as well, uh, just to give you a bit of a heads up. He's going to talk both about the. Uh, uh, the World Women's World Cup draw, which takes place on Saturday. And, uh, Kevin, you're you're doing something for that, aren't you? I am. I'll be at the beer market in Montreal. Come and join me at noon to watch uh, live the draw live from Ottawa, from Gatineau. All right. Okay, before we get into the Canadians as domestics, uh, Kevin, I took some notes from uh, Don Garber's uh, State of the Union address. And we'll just quickly go through some of the non-Canadian issues and have a brief chat before we run a clip of him talking uh, about the Canadian stuff, and I share some stuff that I've learned in the last little bit, over the last month or so, and a little bit today as well on that. So without further ado, uh, let's start. I'll just go in an order of here how it came up in the, in the group, and you can listen to this whole uh, Q&A that he had with a few select reporters uh, on MLSsoccer.com. You can find it easy enough. That's where we got the clip from. Uh, the just, first before, just before we move, go into the meat of the, of the press conference, what do you think about the new format that they tried to select just a small amount of people to be with Don Garber? Well, it's ironic considering you talked about how transparency was a big part of what he wanted to do in 2015. And then that's the year he chose the, the 2014 MLS Cup is the year that he chose to limit the amount of people that have access to him. It kind of doesn't really fit. But at any rate, 
uh, we'll we'll get into that stuff a little bit more. It, it did work well, I guess, in the past, and I think that uh, it's kind of been a free for all with the fans were there and so on and so forth. It's a bit of a weird thing. Back in the day, they used to have a long uh, planning period. Like I was at the 2010 MLS Cup here in Toronto, obviously, and and you know things were planned, and we had as like prominent bloggers, we were invited to a special like blogging round table where we had an audience with Don Garber and they had the one for the big media and then they had one for the fans and they had a lot of events that were around it, but they had months to plan that. Whereas this is kind of a last minute thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's kind of why they were forced into that format. All right. So I'm going kind of going chronologically here, Kevin. Uh, the first thing he talked about uh, of meat was the possibility of what they're calling flex scheduling for next year. Okay. Uh, that will mean that on the last week, there's flexibility in when the schedules are so that uh, they have kind of something like the last day of the Premier League when all the games are ending at the same time, which is something we've all uh, been clamoring for for a bit. Now, (laughs) I am guessing that it won't be every game because... Would it be a meaningful game, you think? Just the teams that uh, are example, if the supporter show is going to be one on that day, they'll be put those teams' games at the same time? Yeah, I think that what they'll do is that they'll have some openness to allow uh, some games to be shifted around to the Sunday so that if there's something going on that involves two teams that are playing different te- different teams, that their games will be played simultaneously, which is a baby step. And it's a baby step that I, as cynical as I can sometimes be about MLS, will, will accept because I understand that there are complications to scheduling in MLS that prevent this from happening in the same way that it does where you you know have controlled your stadium for 100 years like in England, right? Um, so, yeah, there's that. Um, so hopefully that happens, and that's that was what they led with. So you'd think that it probably is going to be something that happens. Uh, Cuba Torres, uh, he talked about that. Basically, they're still working on that. Is what he said. Uh, there was some implying that one of the issues, and I, I got this uh, uh, from talking to a few people, that one of the things that might be slowing the, the Torres signing down and distribution down where he goes is that he only wants to go to two or three teams. And uh, the league is a little reluctant to allow a player to have that kind of uh, power uh, this close to the CBA. So they're trying to work with the league and with him to try and quietly get him where he wants to go without it seeming like they're allowing him to control where he wants to go. If that makes sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, it does. Uh, it's still, again, that's a weird situation that has happened way too often in MLS. And that's one other thing I think I heard that eventually – They're trying to make the rules a little clearer for the fans and for the journalists themselves. Yeah, actually, that was one of the things they said is that uh, they asked whether they would reveal what allocation was, how it opened. And then you completely dodged that aside. They're never going to tell us how much allocation they have. And the reason for that has to do with not necessarily hiding it from fans, but they want to hide it from agents and they want to hide it from clubs. So because it's a a bidding market, so they don't want to know people to know exactly how much money they're dealing with. I mean, they could probably work around that and use it in kind of units or something they could call it, and they wouldn't necessarily know what the dollar figure is, but it gets a little complicated. Anyway, he claims that they're going going to release all of their player acquisition methods are going to be listed and publicly made available for the 2015 season. So we'll know about any kind of drafts and blind draws and so on and so forth that are going to take place before they happen. We'll see. We'll see. There was a great picture on Twitter yesterday during Twitter broke down when he was doing the State of the Union. Just hashtag MLS S State of the Union. It was something like that. You'll find it. It's State of the League. S-O- SOTL. 
Yeah, it was. Oh, it was so funny. There was a picture of a Wheel of Fortune with allocation, DP, a country DP, special discovery. <laughs> and you had to turn the wheel to see which one is going to be explained. And I'll just let you in a little heat. I got uh, got a message from a prominent Canadian person uh, during the uh, the hashtag uh, MLS SOTL uh, state there. And he said uh, we have a different acronym here in Canada, what that stands for. It's Canadian MLS SOL. If you fail, follow, folks. I don't know if you follow that English acronym or not. But uh, anyhow, um, Miami, uh, he basically fired warning shots from Miami to tell their politicians that they needed to get a downtown stadium or they might not go there. Um, it was diff- typical posture, posturing that you've seen before from Garber and the league. Uh, he got kind of called on it, uh, that it was kind of a double standard between that and L.A. where they don't have a stadium in New York where they don't have a stadium. Uh, his claim was that in L.A. they have three uh, viable stadium locations. So if one falls through, the other two are equally viable. So they have no fear that they won't have a stadium in New York. They said that they were at the the agreement stage is how he put it. For uh, I guess it would be the stadium that was going to be down where the Mets play down there, and uh, it fell through at the last second unexpectedly. So that uh, he was implying that uh, that the only reason New York got the team was because they had the stadium in place, and then the stadium fell through unexpectedly after the team was in place. So that's uh, what he said there. Um, but they're not going to go to Miami without quote unquote a proper stadium situation. Um, at one point in the conversation, he claimed that New York City FC had 20,000 season tickets sold. Uh, that number has been questioned by a few people, so we'll see. <laughs> 20,000? Come on. There's no team in MLS that has maybe Seattle. Yeah, Seattle does, but that's that's it. Yeah, Toronto has about 16,000 at the top end, so it would be a little weird. I think probably what he has is 20,000 deposits because that always happens. When the expansion teams are coming in, they always use the deposit number. Which is genuine, sometimes isn't even real money. It's sometimes just putting a credit card down yeah. and saying, this is a hold, and then do you want me to run your card? Uh, what? Oh, no. You know, that's the kind of thing. Um, all right, about five more minutes, and then we'll get into the Canadian stuff. I guess that the one thing we'll last talk about before, uh, before we do that is we'll go into the money a little bit. And this is going to be a topic of conversation throughout December and January for us on this show. Uh, we might want to work on a CBA bumper, Kevin. Um, <laughs> He basically threw out that $100 million loss figure again, and there's a lot of – it doesn't make any sense. I have been going through the uh, data all morning to try and figure out what the hell he's talking about here. Um, The problem is MLS is not obligated to open its books, so we're never going to know for sure. But $100 million doesn't make a lot of sense. There are some numbers out there that have been verified to as much as they can be. Uh, which isn't saying much, and that's a bit of a caveat. But, however, um, the Forbes numbers that I'm using, and they were also used by a, a, a study that the D.C. United folks used and presented to their city council as the data that was coming from MLS to justify the building of that stadium, which did get uh, approval through the um, Committee of the Whole. Uh, yeah, last I saw that yesterday, too. So we'll see if that goes through one more stage. Committee of the Whole, usually, if you have never followed municipal politics, is get passed. So good for that. Was it, anyway, what is uh, the fourth time DC tried to get a stadium? Is the first time it actually crosses this stage, so it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the yeah. That's the people that generally make the decisions, and they make a recommendation to council, and council ninety nine times out of a hundred will follow the recommendation of the committee of the whole. Um, there's a little bit too much municipal politics information for any of you, but uh, those who've covered it know how that works. Anyway, uh, some numbers from the Forbes and from the uh, MLSPU. 
which we can use to sort of look at that $100 million objective weight. Basically, Forbes and, and using Forbes and the DC United Stadium document, you can find a total estimated revenue per year uh, for all the MLS clubs at $494 million. These are in US figures. If you use the uh, Major League Soccer Players Union uh, player salary data, it comes out to a total, uh, excluding DPs, of $129.5 million in salary. So if you're going to do the, the math to figure out how much MLS has to be doing, it has to be spending in order to be losing that much money. It's $464.5 million as they have to be spending on things other than salaries and players. Well, we all know it's a manipulation of, of, of data, too. It's you can Data, you can make it say whatever you want. It's just the way you present it. And that's what they're doing again. Yeah, and it hasn't been audited. Uh, exactly. So if it's audited, they can do whatever they want legally, right? Like if this, it's not a, they're not obligated to give you the right numbers. So that's no, it's private thing. numbers. It's yeah, you're right. It's their own numbers. They can say whatever they like. They're not obliged to devolve any, divulge anything. All right, and we're going to get into this a lot more in the future. But real quickly, just a couple quick points for those to think about if they are looking at these numbers and trying to do some calculations in their own head. There are two major points they want to bring. And the first one is that I've talked about many times before is that MLS always excludes the revenues they get from Soccer United Marketing. Uh, they consider it a separate, a separate company. Uh, there's some of you that are listening to this that will agree with that uh, interpretation. There's others that are more labor-focused that will not, and we're not going to get into that argument right now, but that is a major area of contention. How much money from some should be considered as MLS money or whether it should be at all? That's a major issue of contention that's always going to be there as long as this the division of assets exists within, within the structure, the financial structure. The other area I want to quickly point out um, – when he's talking about this $100 million, and, and basically from talking to people today and, and doing some of my own research, what we're coming up with consistently is the way they're getting that figure that high is to include capital costs, infrastructure improvement costs, in a gross figure as part of the loss. So they're taking you know whatever BMO is – they're paying out BMO right there this year to expand it. They're just putting that as a lump sum as a loss rather than um, occurring it over the length of the time that you'd expect that stadium to, to exist, right? And they're also not factoring any any return on investment or anything like that. Yeah. They're just taking the lump number and going, that's a loss. And that's not really how you do things when you're trying to calculate the worth of something. Um, and it's just it's something that's going to get fought about when, when we're talking about the CBA. And we're going to talk a lot about numbers in this podcast in the next few weeks. Uh, when we talk about the CBA, I'll put my bias right out front. I am on the player side in this. I think MLS manipulates these numbers way too much. And I think that if we really want this league to excel, we need to expand uh, the, the amount that they spend on players. But uh, there's a lot of resistance to that. Okay, Kevin, uh, let's run the clip of Don Garber talking about Canadians as domestics now. Let's talk about Canadian content for one moment um, for my constituents, you know. Um, is there progress being made uh, concerning the status of Canadian players being considered uh, domestic players in all MLS clubs, not just Canadian teams? So uh, we, I get asked this in every interview I do up in Canada. I know it is a very emotional issue. And when we went to Canada, one of the great benefits is how strong and, and relevant the sport is. Put Major League Soccer aside, we're doing really well in Vancouver, Montreal, and Toronto. But the sport itself is embedded in the culture. So we knew that would work. 
We also understand that the character and the, the nationalism of that community and the flag and the national anthem are all things that make it a very special place for any American business to engage in and do, and do business. We have this rule of having Canadian players, uh, uh, American players, counting as domestics in Canada because we don't have enough Canadian players that are good enough yet to be able to allow those teams to be competitive. And our goal as a league should be, with the CSA, to change that issue. And when that issue changes, we'll be the first ones to say that that rule should change as it relates to Canada. Now going back to the United States, unfortunately, and we've said this publicly many times, we can't, from a labor perspective, treat a Canadian citizen different than we treat any other non-American citizen. All the other rules about border uh, issues aside, a Canadian in the United States is no different than a Mexican, no different than a Honduran, no different than a, than a Brit. So we cannot do that. What we can do is find ways to address the opportunity for the Canadian player. And one of the things we're talking to Victor Montalagi about is, can we provide more opportunities in Major League Soccer for Canadians? Can we give them, our clubs, an incentive to try to sign Canadian players? Could we provide them with more opportunities to train and develop? Those are the things we're talking about. I think you've got a great president of the Canadian Soccer Association in Victor. He's very focused on this issue, not because Twitter is forcing him to, but because he wants the Canadian national team to get better, and so do we. Are the Canadian clubs asking for more Canadian content? There was a rule about that, about the number of Canadian players that had to be. Is pressure coming from the CSA, or is it coming from the clubs? Well, I don't think, I don't look at it at pressure. I look mm -hmm. at it as a dynamic, right? Okay. How do we work together to get the Canadian uh, uh, game, the, the, the national team better, and what kinds of things need to happen? What does the CSA need to do on their own? And how could Major League Soccer help that happen, similarly to how we're helping U.S. soccer happen? Right now, if you can ask the president of U.S. soccer whether or not he wanted our league to uh, help the Canadian national team get better, he'd say yes, because we do think of ourselves as aligned with Canada and Mexico as a block, if you will, and, and actually CONCACAF use us as the North American block in ways that we're trying to work together. We have a FIFA window that f falls right smack in the middle of our playoffs. And last year we had to have two weeks between our first leg and our second leg. This year we moved it later, and now we have only one week between MLS, the championship game, and our MLS Cup final. So it is an insurmountable issue. It's a square peg in a round hole. Uh, it would be good for us to be able to take off all FIFA windows, not have to have competition with our national team, with national team, national team, national team, national team. National team. Team, Kevin. Team. Did you hear that? Did you hear the S, Kevin? Because I didn't hear an S. Did you hear an S? I did not hear an S. Did you think he was talking about the Canadian national team? Is that the national team he was talking about? I can safely say probably not. All right. Okay, you get the point I'm making with the last half of that clip. Uh, and there was a couple times in there. Now I'll say this: his handlers prepped him well during the League of or the State of Affairs or State of the Union address. He did mention Canada a lot, and there were questions that were directly, as you heard in the first half of that clip. He gives the standard line that MLS always gives when it comes to the Canadians' domestics question. Um, we'll get into that in a second. But there is this inherent sort of 
forgetfulness when sometimes when it comes to the fact that there are two countries in the league, and that's 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 the name of our show. We are the the two solitudes. They are one, and they are the one that have all the power in this this relationship in a lot of ways, and and we get that. But at any rate. I just wanted to put that second half on there to just show how he so easily, even after he's just gotten done talking about Canada, can forget about Canada in a half second. Um, Kevin? Like you said earlier, it's a Freudian slip, but it gives us a window into his mindset or is uh, the way he thinks on a second and Canada is never there after that second. Exactly. Speaking of Canada, so we'll get into the meat of this. And there's an article that I wrote on CSM uh, last night following the State of the Union address where I talked about the specific issue and what I've known and what I've learned about what's going on with the fight for Canadians as domestics uh, league-wide over the past few months and in the past couple of days. And I've done some more conversations this morning as well, uh, this morning being Wednesday, to talk about just exactly where we are with this. First off. The idea, the way that he black and white said that, that we can't bring these guys in from a labor perspective, that is not at all a black and white issue. It is always presented by Major League Soccer as a black and white issue, as absolutely they can't do it. Well, lawyers don't put it that way that we've talked to, that other people have talked to. Stephen Sandor has done a lot of great work on this, and, and maybe after the fact I'll go to the Twitter feed and I'll get some of the links back to his older stuff that he did on the stuff where he really breaks it down from a legal perspective. It's just not black and white. The USL Pro, which is affiliated with MLS, counts Canadians as domestics on American teams. Figure that one out. One question, will it stay that way next year for the USL? Absolutely. uh, The USL actually confirmed it in the last couple of days. There's no intention whatsoever to to change that rule. They just don't don't believe it to be legally wrong. They don't believe it to be against their labor laws because they don't think that it's a favorable treatment. At any rate. I can tell you right now from having the conversation that this is the number one priority of the CSA, has been for over a year now. You can hear it in the clip. He talks about how much pressure he's getting, and it's not going to come from Twitter. There's the mention that I think might have been addressed to people like myself that harass him all the time on this issue. However, um, you, you, yeah, you, the issue is the, the, the number one priority for them. They need to – what they're trying to do and what they're willing to do now is they're willing to compromise. But there's a roadblock that's happening somewhere in the United States. And by all accounts, that roadblock is from the USSF level. It's not necessarily from MLS. In many ways, when you think about this issue, Kevin, MLS, they would rather just do it because then it's done. You wouldn't have us whining at them. It would actually help them on the player salary level because there would be a slightly larger player pool. Uh, the Canadians wouldn't be uh, pushing salaries up up as Canadians, if there wasn't a Canadian quote up here, uh, because that would be the other part of it. If they brought it in as Canadians domestically wide, they would not They would then probably drop the Canadian quota in Canada. You know what it would do to for Don Garber? It's going to be that point might even uh, have more weight for him. It'll help the U.S. men's national team in the long run. Having one more rival, one more team that you can face every year that's more competitive, it'll hit the U.S. being a better team as well. Well, in the statement, he says that my work will not be complete until the Canada qualifies for a World Cup. And then he said he counters that to then go say that he can't put Canadians as domestic league wide and that his work's not going to be done if Canada doesn't make the World Cup and that there aren't enough Canadians good enough that they cannot make Americans domestics in Canada. These points don't combine, right? If you're going to do that, then you need to be providing opportunity for the Canadians if you truly want Canada to qualify for a World Cup. Anyway. What 
I've heard the compromise that the CSA is now working on with MLS is this. And I explained this in the CSN article, but essentially you would create, instead of having Canadians count as domestics, they would be their own special designation. They would have Canadian spots on each MLS American-based team. This would be in addition to the other roster spots. So they wouldn't then necessarily be viewed as providing a this is where the labor law argument comes in they wouldn't be perceived as be giving an advantage to another foreign worker compared to another one so they wouldn't be giving an advantage to canadians over mexicans because these spots would be for canadians and the way that they would do this legally is that they would create an mls canada office or division or arm and then these players that were on the canadian contracts would be employees of that arm that then simply would be doing their work in the united states it'd be like any like someone from mcdonald's in toronto working in new york for a year they're still getting paid by their Canadian. They're still registered as a Canadian. They still are a Canadian. So legally speaking, they're not necessarily – they're not working as Americans. You know what I mean? They're not yeah. taking an American job. I, you know, I don't mind how they do it. I just hope that if we just need the Canadians to not count as international in the States. Because if you're an American with a certain bias towards your roster, towards a player, and you have a choice between a, a fourth-tier division – Brazilian or a Canadian, guess who's going to pick? Well, I, I mean, you like to think they pick up for the talent, but it's it becomes complicated. What it, I think the biggest issue is there's like you look at a guy like Ashton Morgan. He's kind of the guy that you know he just got an option picked up today, which surprised me. But at any rate, mm-hmm. Ashton wasn't really playing for Toronto last year, so there was some thought if if he was considered a domestic league wide, he's a young guy that still has some promise out there. That maybe a change of scenery wouldn't be the worst thing for him. But right now, if Toronto's going to trade Ashton Morgan, then they're, they really have to deal with two people. They either have to deal with Vancouver or Montreal. And if their needs are met in that area, then there's just no market for him on a trade level. And we're not even talking about TFC getting a big return for him, just yeah. to move the guy on for some real, for, for his own benefit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, however, if he's domestic league-wide, then suddenly maybe Colorado. Oh, yeah, we could use a fullback. We could use a left-back. So they would bring him in because he's not counting as an international slot for him. But if he's an international slot then he has to be at a certain level. They're not going to take a risk with him. That's why we need this. But at any rate, if you go with the format that the CSA is now sort of pressing for, and that if you listen to Don Garber's words carefully, you can hear that he's suggesting this, it wouldn't be the same thing exactly, but it might actually be better because it might open up more opportunities. If each MLS American team had two Canadian spots, they would, might be more willing to bring in like a Canadian NCAA grad and try and work with them or a guy that's not MLS ready and try and work with them because they'd be on a low salary. They'd be a probably off budget. They wouldn't count against their, their roster limit. They wouldn't count against their national cap. There's no risk to it, really. You're just bringing in a, another player, another warm body that you can put in a USL club, that you can send to your affiliate, you can get some playing time and see maybe if one of them can evolve. And it's just a no-risk proposition for them to bring younger Canadians in. So in some ways, I don't mind this. In some ways, I think it might even be better than just counting Canadians just domestically wide because if you did that, then I don't think you'd overnight get you know, 34 new Canadians in the league. You'd just probably get two or three more that would come in, and that number might progress more. So in some ways, this compromise solution to have Canadian spots might actually be better than domestics league-wide. What I see with that uh, suggestion is the consistent number of Canadian players in the league. Because even right now, it always fluctuates. If you have, example, two players per team, that's 40 per the league at minimum. 
you always get that 40. And that's a consistent amount of, even if they're not getting playing time, it's a consistent amount of players that are practicing, training with first-tier club in the, 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 the I was going to say the country, but it's in, in the, the continent almost. So it's, it's great. Yeah, well, and the rule would be for the American teams. Obviously, the Canadian teams would still yeah. have domestics. Um, however, the rule would also then be in place. If you want to, one of the things Don John, John Johnson, Don Carver said today. In Miami? Because they, he said Miami? He speaks about Don Johnson? What he said is he, the reason they want to go to 12 playoff teams, and we didn't even talk about that, but the reason they want to go to 12 playoff teams is because they want to stick at the 50% level, and they're already thinking ahead until when they get to 24. So they want to get the 12 playoff thing in place so that people are used to it and ready to it by the time it gets the, the quota that they want. Well, the rule that is being suggested here with having the special designated spot for Canadians would also then be able to extend into Canada for Americans when they got to the point that Don Garber says that he wants to get to, and then they can eliminate the Americans as domestics in Canada. Probably a few years off that, but then you already have that rule in place. It's the same kind of consistency, right? So instead of Canadians as having two Canadian spots or three or one or whatever it is, you would have an American spot or two American spots in Canada. The more I think about it, that rule is even better than what we're asking for. I really want that rule now. I want that because in four or five years from now, we won't get Americans as domestic in Canada, which is uh, probably better than having two Canadians per team in the States. Yeah, and you know what's rather also the better absolutely is to having our own one A league. Um, True. Quick, quick note on that: um, what's being suggested to me and and other people uh, are reporting this as well. Stephen Sandor was, uh, was talking about it on Twitter today, so uh, I'll mention it now. Is that uh, the, the league? There's still desire for it, but they actually after their sort of financial planning and that what they're looking for now and what they're seeking now is is a major corporate sponsor to underline the league and until they have a canadian corporate uh entity out there willing to jump in and be a um a major player in this there, there's probably a hold up on that um and just as i'm saying this i had something leap up in my screen here that suggested that there's a usl pro uh, expansion announcement in a non-MLS city, and I'm going to have to look into that, Kevin, because that doesn't counter with what I know, and uh, that's just jumping at my screen right now. In Canada? Uh, yeah, in Calgary. I just saw oh, it. just oh. came up on my Twitter feed, um, and that's what distracted me in the middle of that conversation. Because wondering, uh, like It's breaking news, obviously, but wondering what the CSA is going to say about that, because they're really not for new American... League, American-based league, having teams in Canada except the 3MLS and their USL Pro affiliates. Well, absolutely. That was the rule as it was explained to me. So on that note, Kevin, I think I need to go do some digging now. <laughs> there you go, folks. So live, you know what we're going to talk about the next show. We're going to talk about the new USL Pro team in Calgary. And until then, have a great soccer. Now tell them cats where you from, baby. Come on, yeah. let them know. She's Miss California. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Hottest thing in West L.A. Down by the wall